We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 382 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, August 22nd, 2022. We on the podcast, yes, are still basking in the afterglow of winning the first ever DC Sports Fan Bracket Challenge for local media people. Self-obsessed, massive, ego-having <laughs> local media people. But I must also say... We also are coping uh, with some bad news on the Al Galdi podcast. The commander's player with our most favorite name on the team has been placed on the reserve injured list. The commanders on Sunday for the NFL's transaction wire placed edge defender, wait for it, Bumi Rotimi on the reserve injured list. Uh, He in the 24-14 preseason loss at the Kansas City Chiefs on Saturday, suffered a leg injury. I thought that the injury might be serious, and sure enough, it was. So no more Bumi Rotimi, at least for now. Uh, And that'll mean no more Ron Rivera butchering, slaughtering the name Bumi Rotimi, at least for now. Um, Rotimi, Rotunmi, Bumi is also a heavy-handed guy who's physical as well. Yes, thank you, Ron. I'm going to miss you doing that. Uh, but all the best to Boomy Rotimi. I mean that. Talented player. Uh, that is another blow to the commander's edge defender depth with uh, Chase Young expected to be out for at least week one as he's coming off his torn right ACL. Hello and welcome to this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. The commanders on Sunday made another move in addition to Boomy Rotimi being placed on the reserve injured list. Uh, The commanders on Sunday claimed tight end Kendall Blanton off waivers. Uh, Kendall Blanton for the Super Bowl champion Los Angeles Rams last postseason had some big catches. Uh, The commanders right now, as you likely know, are hurting big time at tight end uh, due to a number of guys dealing with or coming off injury. So yeah, the commanders. Uh, What about it, man? Uh, Where are they at right now off two preseason games? Uh, Next segment, I have a special guest for you to talk commanders. Ryan Fowler 
of the Draft Network. Uh, He is the host of a commander's podcast, Commanding the Huddle with Ryan Fowler. Uh, He used to work for the Redskins. Yes, he worked for the Skins, and he has lived to tell about it. Uh, He he was a writer for them, uh, and he has a great handle on the team, understands and can talk X's and O's really well. Uh, Ryan and I are going to get into where the commanders are at with a number of players and units coming out of the preseason game at the Chiefs. Uh, Ryan has a potential fix for the commander's defense. Yeah, Ryan has a suggestion for how to improve the commander's defense. You know, we're not just going to complain about stuff. We are going to offer a solution for the commander's defense, uh, which, as you may have heard, has had some problems on third downs so far this preseason. Uh, Also, lots from Ryan on Carson Wentz, Sam Howell, Brian Robinson Jr., Antonio Gibson, Jahan Dodson, and others. Uh, You're going to enjoy Ryan. He knows his stuff, and he'll be with me next segment. Also on the show, uh, the Nationals. My thoughts on their four-game split at the San Diego Padres, a series in which the Nats did not hit much, uh, but also a series in which the Nats pitched very well, especially from a bullpen standpoint. The Nats' two losses in the series came over the final two games of the series. Each loss was a 2-1 loss. Uh, Do you know that the Nats, over their last seven games, have an ERA of 286? Yeah, not bad. Uh, Also, we on Sunday night had Nats news. Uh, They and the Philadelphia Phillies will play in next year's Little League Classic in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Uh, Now, we also on Sunday night had this year's Little League Classic in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And the result of that game was a win for the Orioles. A 5-3 win over the Boston Red Sox on Sunday night. O's won the series two games to one. I will talk O's later in the show. The rise of the O's continued over the weekend. Do you know that Caesars Sportsbook listed the Orioles over-under win total for the 2022 regular season coming into the season at 62 and a half? Uh, Well, the O's on Sunday night improved to 63 and 58. They already have surpassed their over-under win total. Uh, We have a phrase for that in these parts. Uh, That phrase, Orioles magic. Orioles magic, here it happened. Orioles magic, here it happened. Yes, thank you. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from District Sports Talk on the performance of the Commanders in their preseason loss at the Chiefs. Uh, writes District Sports Talk, uninspiring and unenthusiastic effort from Washington lessens my excitement and optimism for the season. Uh, yes, I hear you, District Sports Talk. Uh, that was not some great feel-good performance by the Commanders at the Chiefs. The thing that I keep coming back to, though, is preseason. Uh, it so often means so little. The NFL preseason is like a house of mirrors, and what you see so often is a distorted version of reality. But yeah, it's not like the commanders deserve some great benefit of the doubt that everything's going to be just fine, especially with the defense. You know, with the offense, you could at least say that the offense is missing a lot of key guys right now at tight end and along the offensive line. The defense is mostly healthy. A tweet from Branson Willoughby on Brian Robinson Jr. writes Branson, 
I thought dude looked like the second coming of Derrick Henry when he was at Alabama. When the skins got him, I was thrilled. Uh, oh boy, Branson, don't get us excited like that. Brian Robinson Jr., the second coming of Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry is the modern day John Riggins. What if Brian Robinson Jr. is our new John Riggins, our new El Rigo? Okay, okay, I'll calm down. Uh, e- email from Jeremiah in Arizona on the Commanders, writes Jeremiah, love the podcast like everyone else states. My comment slash concern on what's worst for the Commanders so far, number one, Jason Wright, ha-ha, two dot two dot two two, new name reveal voice. Uh, number two, the burgundy and the uniforms not matching at all and having real gold in the color theme. Number three, the defense. Thanks, and I've left three different reviews with my KD Burner account on the app. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremiah. Yes, written reviews on Apple Podcasts are always appreciated, especially if they are done via a Kevin Durant like burner account. So can I say this? Uh, I, for the most part, liked the commander's uniforms at the Chiefs on Saturday. Is that okay? Can I admit that? Uh, The white jersey, the burgundy pants, the burgundy helmet with the gold W and gold stripe. Uh, Now, yes, uh, to Jeremiah's point, the burgundy for the letters and numbers on the white jersey did seem to be different than the burgundy for the pants. Uh, I don't quite get that. Uh, I did see the suggestion from Commander's Insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington on Twitter that the burgundy pants could have used gold stripes down the sides. Uh, Okay, I don't have a problem with that. But overall, I did like the Commander's uniforms for Saturday at the Chiefs. Uh, And yes, Jeremiah, ha-ha! Doug, what is it? We are the Commander's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we are the commanders. The commanders. The Washington commanders. That's right. Uh, oh, wow. You didn't waste any time there. There it is. Yes, thank you. And there it is. Uh, and if you have questions or concerns about the health of your skin, know that Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. Uh, there they are. Uh, call 301 396 3401, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Dr. George Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Commanders fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast, and operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Uh, The institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. If you are dealing with acne, psoriasis, or eczema, if you're interested in procedures like Botox, laser hair removal, or chemical peels, if you are dealing with skin cancer or have dealt with skin cancer or want to get screened for skin cancer, contact Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Heck, Dr. George Verghese and the Institute offer free skin cancer screenings in addition to offering advanced treatments for many skin cancers, including treatments that many other practices do not offer, like SRT, which is superficial radiation therapy. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. That's 301 396 3401. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. But call 301 396 3401. You could also visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. 
For excellent and comprehensive skincare, contact Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. All right. Well, what to take from an NFL team's preseason is always such a difficult thing to figure out, right? And the truth is, what ends up mattering from an NFL team's preseason often ends up being retroactive. Like, you only, in hindsight, know what truly mattered from an NFL team's preseason. So it's quite possible that we'll look back and laugh at some of the things that we thought and said about the Commanders 2022 preseason. But for now, what we have is the Commanders first team offense this preseason having been okay, uh, but certainly underwhelming in terms of scoring points. Uh, Injuries at tight end and along the offensive line may be a big part of that. And also what we have with the Commanders this preseason is a Commanders defense that has been brutal on third downs uh, most recently in the 24-14 preseason loss at the Kansas City Chiefs this past Saturday. So what should we be thinking about this upcoming Commanders season? Well, uh, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, Ryan Fowler of the Draft Network. Uh, He is the host of a Commanders podcast, Commanding the Huddle, with Ryan Fowler. Uh, He used to work for the Redskins. Ryan was an intern for the Skins from August 2018 to May 2019, and then was a staff writer for the Skins from May 2019 to July 2020. Uh, You can follow Ryan on Twitter at underscore Ryan Fowler underscore. Hey, Ryan, how are you? I'm good, Al. Also talk about here with Commander Chiefs. Yeah, there is a lot to talk about uh, with our commanders. Uh, Let's start with a general question. Uh, Two games into their preseason, are you more encouraged or discouraged about the team for the 2022 season as compared to how you felt about the team entering its preseason? I'm going to stay as positive as possible. I think there's definitely things to work on, but we're still early in this process. And especially when you look on the offensive side of the ball with Carson Wentz, learning a brand new offense under Scott Turner. There's a lot of things that he's been having to do pre-snap Post-snap, what teams are rolling to, we saw a little bit as far as the expansion of the playbook, targeting more downfield, not so much with running backs out of the backfield, targeting Aaron Rodgers a lot like we saw the first two series against the Panthers. Stay encouraged, especially on the offensive side of the ball. But on defense, Al, I still have my questions. I think there's a lot of things schematically that need to be addressed. I think from a personnel standpoint, I like who they have at all three levels of the defense. You added tier one athletes. That's something that Martin Mayhew and Ron Rivera have focused on since their tenure here in Washington, but I want them to be a little more aggressive. And that starts on the outside against the chiefs. You're in third and five and you're sending six against Patrick Mahomes. And you've got these long corners on the outside, Benjamin St. Juiced, William Jackson, these guys that are able to come up near the line of scrimmage and reroute guys. Not doing that. You're, you're giving these guys five, six yard cushions on the outside. Be physical, be aggressive. Let them get in their chest paint a little bit. Let them know that you're there. I want them to be a little more aggressive on the defensive side of the ball. And I think that starts from a conceptual standpoint for Jack Del Rio. But I'm going to stay positive here as we move into week three of the preseason. Is the commander's lack of aggression on defense your biggest schematic issue with the commander's defense? It is. There's too much talent on the back end to be giving up third and seven, third and eight continuously. I think we know what we're going to get from that front seven from a pressure perspective. I know Ron and Del Rio, when they sit down in their meetings as four, you know, two former NFL linebackers themselves, they want to get after the passer a little bit. You have the bodies to do so and rotational as well. You've seen them in the back end of the draft the last few years, add guys like James Smith, Williams, William Bradley King, Shaka Tony flashed again. They have plenty of bodies, but on the outside, 
be physical, get in their face. And I, I still have my concerns. Kendall Fuller, Al, you look back to his first stint in Washington. He worked over the nickel primarily. Now he's working on the outside against receivers, you know, offenses, X wideouts, guys that are six, one, six, two, that can run, that are long. They don't have issues working over the slot where Kendall was able to use his foot quickness, reroute guys, play that trail technique that we saw. Made a nice play over the middle of the field by the front of that end zone against Sky Moore diving across. That's what Kendall Fuller is best at, playing that trail technique. I'm not sure right now if I'm comfortable playing Kendall Fuller on the outside opposite William Jackson. I think Benjamin St. Juice could be that guy, but they have the bodies to be better than they are right now. With Jack Del Rio, he does have a track record of having presided over a number of very good NFL defenses, but we all know that Washington's defense under Jack was bad last season. Uh, The defense so far this preseason, to whatever extent we should value the preseason, hasn't looked very good. Uh, Do you have faith in Jack getting the commander's defense on track? I do. I do. I think last year, even you look back to 2020 and the success that they had, everyone kind of made it a big deal. Washington's defense was a top five unit in 2020. Well, 2020 was kind of a, hey, you know, welcome to the league when they faced all those tier one quarterbacks. I don't need to go down the list. They faced every tier one quarterback in the league and they still won seven games with Heineke at quarterback. This year, they should be better because of who they face. You look at their first two games. It's Trevor Lawrence and Jared Goff. Those guys aren't any, those aren't world beaters right now in the league, especially with Trevor. He will, is expected to be better, but he's not a world beater right now. I do believe in Jack Del Rio because I like who they have on the defensive side of the ball. I like who they have coming in rotationally. As we know, defenses in the NFL are run about 75% sub-package, so you're going to have a lot of rotational depth at the second and third level. They drafted Fidarian Mathis to be that rotational guy at three-tech along the defensive line. So I do believe in Jack Del Rio getting it right because they're going to need to if he wants another season in Washington as their D.C. Specific to the third down struggles for the commander's defense, are those struggles primarily a function of what you talked about, lack of aggression, or are the struggles about more than just lack of aggression? These struggles have gone back to the days of Joe Barry, Greg Minuski, Jim Haslett. It's just, it has to get fixed. I don't know right now what the simple answer to that is, Al, but one thing's for sure is that they have to be more aggressive at all levels of the defense. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's a long, exhaustive narrative of this team on third down, teams converting and converting and converting. This, def- this defense is not going to reach its performance ceiling ever if they continually are able to stay on the field and not get off the field and be able to breathe. We talk about this offense being better under Wentz. This defense has to get off the field and be able to breathe if they ever want to reach that performance ceiling that we've talked about for years. Yeah, it really is something. Uh, For the sake of specificity, when you talk about the commander's defense needing to be more aggressive, you're talking about blitzing more and playing more press man coverage. Uh, Is that correct? You would advocate for the commanders to be doing those things? I would. And I think we even look at the outside with William Jackson. I think that's the key guy to key on here because of the limited man coverage that he had in his prior days in Cincinnati. And he's been doing more here in Washington, but it's giving four, five, six yard cushions. Get up at right in front of the receiver's face and get your arms on somebody. You have that five yard contact window. Use it to your advantage. I'm tired of sitting in zone on third and eight, having guys run to the sticks and turn around. <laughs> We've seen that in years past when linebackers face Jason Witten and Zach Ertz. Just sit in zone, turn around, fall forward. It's a first down. We've seen it year after year after year. So yes, I would like to see them be more aggressive, both on the outside and within the interior as well. 
Something that I talked about on Sunday's installment of the podcast, episode 381, is the reality of defense in today's NFL. And this certainly isn't to excuse the commander's defense. It needs to be better. But to me, defense in today's NFL is largely a function of the opposing quarterbacks and offenses the defense faces uh, because of the rules, because of how the game is officiated, because of the nature of passing offense. There's only so much that an NFL defense can do right now. Uh, supposedly good, even supposedly great NFL defenses get shredded. Uh, do you view defense in today's NFL this way or not so much? I think it's completely valid. And, and I think the Chiefs are the epi- you know epitome of that it, to, to a T. It's Patrick Mahomes being Patrick Mahomes, and you have to tip your cap to a guy like that. And we look at it on all other sports. You look at basketball, LeBron James. You're not going to stop LeBron James. You have to limit LeBron James. You have to limit the impact of guys like Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen. You look within the NFC East, Dak Prescott, who would ask around the industry, would that's obviously, you know, the best quarterback right now in the NFC East. It's the defense being able to limit offenses when they get in the red area. I think Washington has done a decent job of that, a bend but not break defense and then being able to score 25 plus potential points a game. Now, is that a tall task right now to ask of this offense potentially, but in years past, you look at this Washington offense, it's always been that 21 point mark. If they're able to get over that, they usually win. So having that mentality in this day and age, when offenses are so pass happy, you know, you have to be a bend, but not break. You can give up 500 yards, but if you're giving up 22, 23 points, you're able to keep yourself some ball games. I think if Washington's able to, to do that this fall, they have a chance to not only compete for an NFC East title, but win potentially 10 or 11 games and extend Ron Rivera's tenure in D.C. Much more with Ryan Fowler of the Draft Network talking commanders and moments. I'm going to next ask Ryan about Carson Wentz. How is Carson doing? Uh, We certainly hope that you are doing well and that those who you care about are doing well. But if you or someone who you care about has been victimized by the negligence of someone else, always know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is there for you. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611 and make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions, and Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars For the sick and injured, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yet you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace 
Take care of your family. More now with Ryan Fowler of the Draft Network. He is the host of a Commander's podcast, Commanding the Huddle, with Ryan Fowler. Uh, He used to work for the Redskins. Uh, Let's get to Carson Wentz. Uh, What is your evaluation of where Carson is at with the Commander's offense right now? I like what I've seen from Carson Wentz. I know there's been some concerns as far as inaccuracies, but that's been more of him just from training camp, kind of pushing it down the field and trying to play a little bit of of the hero ball that we saw at times in Indianapolis in his last few stints, the starters stints in, in Philadelphia. And you saw a little bit of the expansion of the playbook against Kansas City, targeting Terry McLaurin, getting Jahan Dotson involved on that bubble screen on their second play from scrimmage. I like what I've seen from Carson Wentz, and the expansion of the playbook is only going to further extend itself as we move down the line. I think even looking at his skill set, is he the athlete that he was when he entered the league? Absolutely not. But I think is he somebody that will just even be able to expand defenses from their third level, keeping them honest, being able to you know, push it down the field? You, you look at Carson Wentz's arm. As a, I'm not going to call it a bazooka. You look at Tyler or Taylor Heineke's pea shooter that he had on his arm. Huh. You have to have that threat under center. You have to. You have to be able to stretch the defense as we sit here in the 2022 NFL and moving forward. And they have the weapons on the outside. And I think it'll come over time. There's going to be some speed bumps and some detours that we're going to have to get through with Carson Wentz. But he has a good offensive line. He's got tight ends. If if healthy, that's a massive question mark right now moving forward. We know he loves to target tight ends, obviously from his days back with Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard in Philadelphia. But I have liked what I've seen so far from Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz with Scott Turner's offense, do you like that as a schematic fit? I do. I do like the fit. I think when you look at back of just the days of with Taylor Heineke and what he offered under center and the success that he had, I think Carson is, again, the arm talent. I don't think he's the athlete of Taylor Heineke. I don't think he's the athlete of Sam Howell's capability right now. But you look at the success that Sam's had, being able to push the ball outside the numbers and drive it into throwing windows, Carson Wentz can do that same thing. I like the scheme fit because he has a ton of athletes around him that do a lot of different things. You look at how they use Curtis Samuel a lot, a lot of that orbit motion and pre-snap and the handoff to Brian Robinson on a power. They like to do a lot of things to keep defenses honest at every single level and then allow Carson to sit back behind a veteran front five and pick and pop, whether it's a five-yard completion to Logan Thomas here or 20-yard completion here to Terry McLaurin, and then we'll take the roof off with a 50-yard shot to Jahan Dotson. I like the I like the scheme fit here with Carson. All right. The commander situation at running back, uh, man, it is crazy how much that situation changed over an eight-day stretch uh, two Saturdays ago through this past Saturday. It sure seems to be the case that Brian Robinson Jr. now is the commander's number one running back. Should that, in fact, be the case? It's, this is fun. You know, this is a changing of the guard very, very quickly in Washington. But this is, you know, what does the NFL stand for, right? Not for long, right? Especially at the running back spot where no one wants to take running backs in the first round. We look back to April when Washington took Brian Robinson. And initially it was, okay, Brian Robinson's going to be that goal line punch guy in the red area. He's going to fill that Peyton Barber role. It was a disrespect to Brian Robinson's workload. You look back to his success, five seasons at Alabama, competing in the SEC, worked his way up the depth chart for Nick Saban. And had success. Ran for over 1,000 yards last year under 14 touchdowns. And then now you see him now come into, into camp. And in the first preseason game against Carolina, there were no hiccups when he came in the game. He can create inside, outside the tackles, always falling forward, which I love. He runs with intelligent violence behind his pads. He just, wanna, he just wants to run straight through you. And that's exactly what Ron Rivera wants. And you look at the kind of the scheme that they like to put with John Matsko up front. 
It's a lot of power. It's an outside zone with Antonio Gibson's speed and J.D. McKissick's speed. But Brian Robinson can do a little bit of everything for you. And I love his fit. And Antonio Gibson, when he was selected, it was, hey, you know, it's a wake-up call for number 24. You can't put the ball on the ground. Six fumbles last year led the NFL. Four fumbles lost led the NFL. Can't do it. Redskins, or excuse me, Commanders fans out there remember Matt Jones. Big body back out of Florida. Had some talent. But put the ball on the ground. Doesn't matter if you're Walter Payton, Barry Sanders, Adrian Peterson. You have to hold on to football. Brian Robinson did that at the SEC level. Now he's been doing it at the NFL level. I get it. It's the preseason. Take it with a grain of salt. But right now, it looks like his job to lose it at the running back spot. What now for Antonio Gibson? I actually think that he might be better off in this new role of pass catcher and kickoff returner. You know, this is shades of what he was at Memphis, uh, for which he was a combo running back receiver. And, you know, obviously Gibson still could get some carries for the commanders, maybe even a lot of carries. I mean, who knows what will happen with Brian Robinson Jr. Maybe he gets hurt and Gibson is right back to being the team's RB1. But what's your outlook for Antonio Gibson with this presumed new role? It's a little tricky just considering that with Robinson's workload on early downs and how much they value J.D. McKissick's role on third down as that one of the most dynamic change of pace and versatile talents in the NFL. I mean, that's just, you're looking back to the spring when J.D. almost signed with the Bills. That's an offense that is one of the top-tier offenses in the NFL. They want a guy like J.D. McKissick. Happy to have him back here, but you look at Antonio Gibson running a Texas route out of the backfield in the third ha- in the second half. And just his ability to create in space and how comfortable he looks. And that's what kind of people forget is that he was that, that wide out, like you mentioned, Al, at Memphis. That dynamic weapon that the NFL loves out of Memphis. The Tony Pollards, the Kenneth Gainwells, and Antonio Gibson. Now, if you look at the tight end bodies, they're down at tight end. I'm not saying move Antonio Gibson to tight end. But as far as a, that flex weapon that they could have in 12 personnel, 13 personnel, that X, that weapon X, have him on the outside. In space, he's proving. Look at the Bills game last year, taking the screen pass 60 yards to the house. Get him in space, whether that's more sweeps, more tosses, more things in shotgun. Do some more things to get him in space if that's where he is most comfortable. Because right now, in between the tackles, he's a lot what Clinton Portis used to do, running into the back of linemen and trying to figure out from there. So I would like to see him get the ball more in space, and I think that's where his role is immediately right now with Brian Robinson working on early downs. You hit on Sam Howell earlier. Uh, What have you made of what we have seen from Howell this preseason? And what do you think it is that the commanders might have in Howell? I like Sam Howell a lot. And the biggest thing here, what I want to tap into is his success that he had at North Carolina last year. And then if you look back to 2020 with the weapons that he had, De'Ami Brown, Daz Newsome, Javante Carter, Javante Williams, Michael Carter, all NFL talents. Last year, they had nobody. And working behind one of the worst offensive lines in all of college football is a guy that competes and you turn on that game against Pittsburgh and Kenny Pickett in the rain and how he carried that Tar Heels offense. And then you look to his success right now, working with the threes and the fours. I look at just kind of microscoping him and bringing the lens into his game and his arm talent and creating with his legs that we saw against Carolina and what he's doing between his ears and how the playbook kind of opened up a little bit in that, even that second half of the Panthers game and the confidence that Scott Turner has in him. He's somebody that moving potentially two, three years down the road. I don't know if Sam Howell is going to get any snaps this year. Taylor Heinke remains one of the best backups in the NFL. And Carson Wentz, this is his job to lose. But for Sam moving down the road and what he's shown so far, both in camp and in the preseason, is someone that you can potentially build around as we move into the future. Wow. So you think that Sam Howell could be a starting NFL quarterback? 100% yes. 100%. 
do you think that Sam Howell could be a franchise NFL quarterback? Now, a franchise-level quarterback, I, I don't know if that's someone that you ultimately want to you know, build the farm around, so to say. But as a fifth-round guy, we see diamonds in the rough every single year. Now, you look at Sam in the industry, I had a day two grade on Sam Howell on my personal board. I didn't think he was going to slip past the third round in a quote-unquote weak quarterback class, which is you know juvenile and early to say because the guy's never thrown an NFL snap before. But what, for what I've seen, working in with receivers as well, working with Kyrick McGowan, Mark and Michelle. These guys probably aren't going to make an NFL roster, Al. I want him to get some work with Jahan Dotson and Deami Brown, and the guys are going to be here. I want to see him get some better bump against some better defenses, and let's see what we really have and provide that evaluation period. Now, again, I don't know if we see Sam Howell again. He may be in a T-shirt and shorts all year long, but as we move down the line, he's going to get his shot. And I 100% think, Al, that if the Carson Wentz doesn't work out this year, that Sam Howell could be the starting quarterback of the Commanders here as we move into 2023. Yeah, that would make sense, especially given that Taylor Heineke is set to be an unrestricted free agent in the 2023 offseason. One more for you, Jahan Dotson. When the Commanders in the 2022 NFL Draft bypassed taking Chris Olave and Jamison Williams and others and traded down and took Dodson, a lot of people felt that that was a mistake and that the Commanders overdrafted Dodson. Uh, What did you think of the Commanders doing that? And what are your expectations for Dodson this coming season? Yeah, trading back was something that they tinkered with. I was like closed in on the draft, and Chris Olave was kind of the sexy name that was floating around. But you look at Jahan and his his kind of his makeup and his frame, he looks a lot like Terry McLaurin. He looks a lot like Curtis Samuel. He looks a lot like Deontay Brown. So from a conceptual and schematic standpoint, he is someone that fits this offense to a T and does a lot of different things at every single level of defense to where they will take he will take eyes off of number 17, which they have to have this year. They cannot just have Terry McLaurin on the outside. It's not going to work, and they will not reach their performance ceiling of an offense. We just talked about it on the defensive side of the ball. But for Jahan in year one, I think he could challenge for the most receptions of any rookie because the attention that's going to be on number 17, he's an alpha in the air. He plays like he's 6'5", and he's you know a little bit under the under six foot. This is someone that competes their tail off. And we've seen him at camp rising over William Jackson, competing against Benjamin Shane Choose. He is a rookie. Am I saying he's going to go out here and have a Jamar Chase-like season or a Justin Jefferson-like season? Absolutely not. But he's someone that's going to get a lot of targets because the attention on number 17 on the other side, and I'm extremely excited for him in this Washington offense, especially with how Scott Turner pumps those outside targets. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, Ryan Fowler of the Draft Network. He is the host of a Commander's podcast, Commanding the Huddle, with Ryan Fowler. Uh, Used to work for the Redskins. Ryan, it was very nice having you on. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me on, Al. All right. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. Uh, A four-game split for the Nats at the San Diego Padres over the last four days. Uh, The Nats' offense was bad. The Nats' pitching, especially their relief pitching, was good. Uh, Even though two certain former Nats, right fielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell, combined for three home runs over the Nats' two losses in the series. I'll get to all of this and more straight ahead. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, the inevitable for the Nationals now is official. Uh, They will have a losing record for the 2022 regular season. Yes, I know. uh, (laughs) The drama over whether the Nats would not have a losing record uh, is over. Uh, The Nats, over the last four days, split a four-game series at the San Diego Padres. So the Nats, for the 2022 regular season, now are a major league worst 41-82, and uh, guaranteeing a losing record in their 162-game regular season. A third consecutive losing regular season for the Nats, off them having had eight consecutive winning regular seasons from 2012 through 2019. Now, the Nats did win each of the first two games at the Padres. A late night on Thursday night, a 3-1 win. Late night on Friday night, a 6-3 win. But then on Saturday night, a 2-1 loss. And then on Sunday, another 2 one loss. This was a competitive series. Uh, the Nats were in these games, but ultimately just way too little offense for the Nats, who over the four games totaled a mere 11 runs. Of course, it was on August 2nd that the Nats traded their two best hitters this season, right fielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell to the Padres. The Nats with Soto and Bell this season were underwhelming offensively. The Nats without Soto and Bell this season have been even worse offensively. Uh, Just a lot of low-scoring games for the Nats over these last few weeks, and the Nats over the weekend were missing two of their better hitters. Uh, First baseman Luke Voigt did not play in each of the final three games of the series due to back tightness, and left fielder Yadiel Hernandez now is on the 10-day injured list. Uh, The Nats on Saturday placed Yadiel on the 10-day IL, retroactive to August 19th with a left calf strain, and recalled outfielder Josh Palacios from AAA Rochester. Uh, The top prospect who the Nats got from the Padres in the Juan Soto-Josh Bell trade, C.J. Abrams. Uh, He was the Nats starting shortstop in all four games in the series at the Padres. He continues to not do much offensively, but he also does continue to display terrific range defensively. Uh, Abrams in the 6-3 win late night on Friday night did have a big hit. Uh, He in a two-run Nats fourth, had a two-out, two-run opposite field single to left field for a 2-1 Nats lead. Uh, Also for Abrams in that game were some throwing issues. You know, his range at shortstop is good. His throwing at times is off. Uh, Abrams in the bottom of the first on a routine one-out ground out by the ex-Nat Juan Soto that was hit right to Abrams on the outfield grass, made a dangerous one-hop throw on which first baseman Joey Manessis made a nice backhanded catch. Uh, But then Abrams in the bottom of the seventh committed a throwing error as he on another routine grounder, this a two-out grounder off the bat of former Oriole Manny Machado that also was hit right to Abrams on the outfield grass, uh, made a bad one-hop throw that uh, 
uh, Joey Manessis did not catch. Uh, still, though, there is a lot to be excited about with C.J. Abrams. He's a very talented player. Baseball America on August 8th ranked Abrams as the number 11 prospect in baseball. Uh, the hope is that the Nats will have Luis Garcia back soon, uh, as we will see the Nats double play combo for hopefully years to come. Abrams at shortstop, Garcia at second base. Garcia is set to begin a minor league rehab assignment for AAA Rochester. He has been on the 10-day injured list since August 15th, retroactive to August 13th with a left groin strain. Uh, we did have some good games and some standout moments uh, for young Nats players, for potential building blocks for the rebuilding Nats uh, in this four-game series at the Padres. Kbert Ruiz was the Nats starting catcher in each of the first three games of the series. He in games one and three went hitless, but he in game two got on base five times. Uh, Ruiz in the 6-3 win on Friday night as the Nats' number five batter, two for two with an RBI single, another single, two walks, and a hit by pitch. And he had a stolen base. Uh, and Ruiz, in the 2-1 loss on Sunday in the top of the eighth, had a pinch two-out opposite field double uh, through the left side of the infield to beat the shift on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, Lane Thomas had a nice series. Uh, he, in game one, was the Nats starting center fielder. He, in each of the final three games of the series, was the Nats starting right fielder. He, over the four games, went five for 17 with a homer and four singles. Uh, Thomas in the 2-1 loss on Saturday night in the Nats one-run second, had a one-out solo homer to left center field for a 1-0 Nats lead. Uh, the homer went a projected 404 feet per stat cast. Alex Call in each of the final three games of the series was the Nats starting left fielder and either their number one or number two batter. And that right there does tell you a lot about the state of the Nats lineup right now. I mean, the Nats claimed Alex Call off waivers from the Cleveland Guardians on August 7th, then recalled him from AAA Rochester on August 14th. And that guy was the Nats' number one or number two batter in each of the final three games of this series. He did, though, hit a big home run in the series. Uh, the Nats, in their 6-3 win at the Padres on Friday night, scored three runs in the top of the ninth off the Padres' then-closer, Josh Hader, who no longer is the Padres' closer, a uh, call in that Nats' three-run ninth, a two-run homer to left field on an 0-2 pitch from Josh Hader for a 6-3 Nats lead. Uh, the homer was Alex Call's first career Major League regular season home run. Uh, Josh Hader came out of this game having allowed six earned runs in three and a third innings for the Padres since they traded for him with the Milwaukee Brewers. And like I said, uh, Josh Hader, at least for now, no longer uh, the Padres' closer. Speaking of home runs, uh, Nelson Cruz on Sunday launched a mammoth home run. Uh, you know, Cruz has been a big disappointment this season. Uh, what is his age 41 season? But we saw old school Nelson Cruz. We saw old school Nelly Cruz uh, in that Nats 2-1 loss on Sunday. He has an Nats starting DH and number four batter, one for four with quite the solo homer. Uh, Cruz in an Nats one run fourth, a one out solo homer on an absolute bomb to left field for a 1-0 Nats lead. The homer went a projected 440 feet per stat cast. Uh, this has not been a good season for Nelson Cruz. He, in this 2022 regular season, now has just 10 home runs and has a slugging percentage of just 354. But that was some home run that he belted 
on Sunday. Uh, no home runs in the series for Joey Manessis. You know, the craze of Joey Manessis hitting one home run after another uh, has calmed down. Uh, the craze, of course, was bound to calm down. He did, though, have four hits in the series. Each was a single. Uh, one should have been a double or at least had the potential to be a double. Uh, Manessis in the 2-1 loss on Sunday was an ad starting first baseman and number three batter. He went one for four with a single. Uh, he in the top of the six had a two-out single that went off the left field wall. Uh, but he then got thrown out by a mile at second base in his attempt to stretch the hit into a double. Uh, and that ended up being the third out. And what happened was that Manessis uh, really didn't hustle all that much out of the box. And, you know, I don't know that he would have necessarily been safe at second base because he hit that ball hard and it came off the wall pretty quickly. But it certainly would have been more of a play at second base had he hustled out of the box. And Manessis was guilty of something similar a few weeks ago. 11-5 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on August 6th. Manessis in that game, and that's one run seventh, had a one-out single off the left field wall as he, uh, out of the box, was admiring his hit uh, as opposed to hustling off his hit. You know, it's actually quite simple, okay? You are Joey Manessis, okay? Uh, age 30 season, 10th minor league season. You need to hustle. Okay, you have hit some home runs, but geez, I mean, Nelson Cruz still hustles. Nelson Cruz, age 41 season, uh, possibly, if not probably, someone who is going to be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame one day. He still hustles. You, as Joey Manessis, can hustle too. Uh, now, the Nats only won two of four games at the Padres, despite allowing just eight runs over the four games. Uh, yeah, the Nats pitching in the series, especially their relief pitching in the series was quite good. Uh, the 3-1 win on Thursday night, five Nats relievers combined for four scoreless innings with four strikeouts. The 6-3 win on Friday night, five Nats relievers officially combined for four and two-thirds scoreless innings with six strikeouts. And I say officially because Victor Arano did allow two inherited runners to score. He came into the game in the bottom of the fifth with runners on first and second, went out in the Nats leading 3-1. And he, to the first batter he faced, Manny Machado, gave up a one-out, two-run opposite field double off the right center field wall to tie the game at three. But Paolo Espino was charged with those runs. But in the 2-1 loss on Saturday night, three Nats relievers combined to allow one run in three innings. And in the 2-1 loss on Sunday, two Nats relievers combined for two and two-thirds perfect innings. Uh, Hunter Harvey, one and two-thirds perfect innings. He faced four batters. He got five outs. And Erasmo Ramirez tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth. Uh, the only official run allowed by a Nats reliever in this series came on Saturday night. Steve Ciszek, in the bottom of the seventh, gave up a leadoff homer to, yes, ex-Nat Juan Soto to dead center uh, for a 2-1 Padres lead. The homer went a projected 429 feet for a stat cast. But that was the only official run allowed by a Nats reliever over these four games. And the bullpen was leaned on quite a bit in this series. Uh, five Nats relievers were used in each of the first two games of the series. Three Nats relievers were used in game three. Two Nats relievers were used in game four. Uh, that is some job by this Nats bullpen at the Padres. And, you know, the overall numbers for Nats relievers this season aren't great, but there have been a number of games in which the Nats bullpen has been good. And there is a depth to this 2022 Nats bullpen that we haven't had often with the Nats. Uh, even when they were good, 
You know, the bullpen was the Achilles heel of the Nats so often uh, during their eight consecutive winning seasons from 2012 through 2019. And the irony that the Nats in their wretched 2022 season have a bullpen that's better than some of the bullpens that those Nats playoff teams of yesteryear had is something. I mean, the 2017 and 2019 Nats in particular for significant stretches had horrendous bullpens. Uh, As for Nats starting pitching over the final three games of the four-game series at the Padres, uh, I mentioned Paolo Espino. He was a Nats starter in game two. He did struggle. Uh, Paolo in the 6-3 win on Friday night, three runs in four into third innings. Now, like I said, two of the runs charged to Paolo did come on that one-out, two-run double by Manny Machado that was given up by reliever Victor Arano in a two-run Padres fifth. And Paolo did give up just three hits, all of which were singles. And he did record four strikeouts, but he also issued four walks. And he threw a lot of pitches and a lot of balls. Uh, He over four and a third innings threw 84 pitches. And he over the 84 pitches threw just 44 strikes versus 40 balls. Uh, Josiah Gray in game three was solid, uh, but also inefficient. 2-1 loss on Saturday night. Gray, one run in five innings. So you like that. Uh, He gave up four hits, a homer, and three singles. He recorded three strikeouts. What really hurt him was not throwing strikes. Uh, He issued five walks, and he over his five innings threw 102 pitches, 55 strikes, versus 47 balls. Uh, Gray in the bottom of the fifth, in fact, on his 100th pitch of the game, gave up a two-out solo homer to ex-Nat Josh Bell to right center field to tie the game at one. Uh, Bell came into the game having been woeful for the Padres. Uh, An OPS plus of just 22 over 68 plate appearances. He needed that homer, and he got that homer, and then he got another home run the next game, Uh, That home run for Bell on Saturday night went a projected 415 feet for StatCast. Uh, Josiah Gray now in the 2022 regular season, 23 starts, ERA of 467, and he has allowed a major league worst 32 home runs. I do, though, think that we have seen more good than bad from Josiah Gray. And then we had Patrick Corbin in game four of the series. Uh, Corbin in the 2-1 loss on Sunday, two runs in five and a third innings. He gave up nine hits, a homer, a double, and seven singles. He issued two walks. He recorded three strikeouts. He, over his five and a third innings, threw a lot of pitches and a lot of balls. Uh, 97 pitches, 56 strikes versus 41 balls. It was funny, with Nat starting pitching in this series, you had a good bit of inefficiency, but you did have run prevention. Uh, Corbin in this game on Sunday, five scoreless innings before giving up two runs in the bottom of the six on a leadoff first pitch double by Brandon Drury to the left center field gap, followed by a two-run opposite field homer by Josh Bell to right field for a 2-1 Padres lead. So for Corbin now in the 2022 regular season, ERA of 681, and a whip of 181. Uh, The outing on Sunday was his second straight start off having had a start skipped uh, due to him struggling especially badly. Uh, 30 earned runs in 21 and two-thirds innings over six starts. In his previous start prior to Sunday's, a 7-5-11 inning loss to the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park this past Tuesday night allowed four runs in six innings. Uh, Nats manager David Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday evening on Patrick Corbin. I mean, Patrick pitched really well. Um, I'll, I'll take those outings from him. The last two outings, I, I thought he pitched well. So um, it was all our offense today. I mean, we had no offense. 
with Patrick when you're able to, when he is able to get around traffic like he did today? What is he what is he doing that maybe uh, he's, uh, he's keeping the ball down, he's getting double plays. I mean that's what he does, right? He gets you know ground balls, um, but when he's down, he's good. And, and um, I hope he learned today that hey, keeping the ball down is effective, and that's what he needs to do. How are you seeing the effects of that skip start, that extra bullpen session that he got in uh, pay off? Very good. Very good. I mean, he's mixing his pitches. You know, he's, he's, he's throwing his fastballs a lot more in when he needs to, but working a lot away. He's throwing his change-ups a lot better. Um, using his sliders when he needs to, um, but he's, he's pitching well. Yeah, he's pitching well uh, for Patrick Corbin, okay? It's all relative, with Patrick Corbin, uh, he has become so bad that if he's not horrendous, uh, that's seen as progress. And he, over his last two starts, has not been horrendous, so that's progress. Uh, also for the Nats over the weekend was this, another good start for Cade Cavalli for AAA Rochester. Uh, now, there were some nits to pick, but we continue to monitor Cade Cavalli and wonder if slash when the Nats are going to call him up to the majors this season. Uh, Cade Cavalli in the AAA Rochester Red Wings 5-1, seven-inning rain-shortened win at the Worcester Red Sox on Saturday. One run in five innings, eight strikeouts. Uh, he gave up just two hits, a double and a single. He did issue three walks, a hit by pitch and a wild pitch. And he did throw a lot of pitches. Uh, he over his five innings threw 109 pitches, 69 strikes, versus 40 balls, but Cavalli now, over his last seven starts, 36 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 147, 43 strikeouts, versus 12 walks. Uh, Cavalli, over his first seven starts for Rochester in the 2022 season, had an ERA of 762, so he did not get off to a good start to the season. He has really settled in nicely over these last few months now. MLB Pipeline ranks Cavalli as the number 58 prospect in baseball. Look, he was supposed to have been called up to the majors months ago. With each passing week, I do wonder if the Nats are going to call him up to the majors this season. I mean, at some point, it becomes uh, pointless to call him up to the majors this season, and you're just better off waiting until next season to call him up to the majors so that you start his service time clock next season and you potentially get a full extra season of team control. But Cavalli is doing well for AAA Rochester right now, and you got to think that he's close to being ready for the majors uh, in the mind of the Nats. Uh, whether they end up calling him up, I guess, is a different issue. Uh, no game for the Nats on Monday. Next up for them is a two-game series at the Seattle Mariners. Game one at the Mariners late night on Tuesday night at 10-10. And Eric Fetty will be the Nats' starting pitcher as he is coming off the 15-day injured list. He has been on that since July 30th, retroactive to July 27th due to right shoulder inflammation. Uh, the Nats are removing Corey Abbott from their rotation. And Game 2 at the Mariners, Wednesday afternoon at 4:10. Anibal Sanchez will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Uh, also, we on Sunday night learned that the Nats and Philadelphia Phillies will play in next year's Little League Classic in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Uh, as for a team that played in this year's Little League Classic. And yes, that team is the Orioles, who on Sunday night in the ESPN Sunday Nighter were back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column.
Yes, thank you, Joe Angel. Uh, the O's over the weekend won two of three games over the Boston Red Sox. Uh, Friday night, a wild 15-10 win at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Saturday, a 4-3 loss at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And Sunday night, a 5-3 win in Williamsport, Pennsylvania in the 2022 Little League Classic. Uh, that is one of the really cool things that MLB does every year now. And this year's event featured an Orioles victory. Uh, they, in the 2022 regular season now, are 63-58 and 58 and are two and a half games behind the Seattle Mariners for the American League's third wild card spot. Uh, now, the O's came into this series against the Red Sox struggling offensively, but they, for the most part, did hit in this series, uh, certainly hit in that 15-10 win on Friday night. The O's in that game, 15 runs, 18 hits, three walks, five for 12 with runners in scoring position. Uh, the 18 hits were comprised of five home runs, six doubles, and seven singles. Uh, the star of the weekend for the O's was Jorge Mateo. Uh, the Jorge Mateo story is something. The O's acquired Mateo via waivers from the San Diego Padres on August 5th, 2021. He is one of multiple successful waiver claims by O's Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias. You know, Elias has done a really good job in this Orioles rebuild of finding diamonds in the rough on the waiver wire, especially relievers. Mateo this season has been excellent defensively at shortstop. He came into Sunday tied for seventh in the American League in defensive wins above replacement for baseball reference in the 2022 regular season at 1.3. Now, now, he's not known for his hitting, but he right now is hitting. And man, did he hit over the weekend. Uh, he was the Orioles starting shortstop in all three games. Mateo in that 15-10 win on Friday night as the Orioles number nine batter. One for five, but the one was a three-run home run. Uh, Mateo in the 4-3 loss on Saturday as the Orioles number six batter. Two for four with a triple and a single. And Mateo in the 5-3 win on Sunday night as the Orioles number nine batter. Two for four with a three-run double and a single. Uh, Mateo in the Orioles' three-run eighth, a one-out, tie-breaking three-run double down the left field line for a 5-2 Orioles lead. Uh, Jorge Mateo now, in this month of August, has the following slash line. You ready for this? Batting average of 338, on base percentage of 392, slugging percentage of 618. Jorge Mateo, the Orioles' number nine batter, <laughs> he is slugging 618 this month. Uh, he has been outstanding for the O's this month. Uh, speaking of outstanding, uh, Adley Rutschman, the phenom, he continues to be outstanding. Another good series for him. He on Friday night as the Orioles starting catcher and number two batter went three for five with a two-run homer, a double, and a single. Now, he and the Red Sox's five-run fifth did commit a catcher interference error, and that along with a throwing error by second baseman Rugnet Odor led to all five runs, uh, which were off reliever Keegan Aiken being unearned. But Rutschman in that game on Friday night in the Orioles' four-run Fourth, a two-out, two-run homer to center field for an 8-4 Orioles lead. And that homer was some shot uh, when it projected 421 feet per stat cast. You know, the O's in that 15-10 win on Friday night scored all 15 of their runs 
in innings two through five. Uh, like I said, that was a wild game. Uh, Rutschman on Saturday has the Orioles starting DH at number two batter, two for four with two singles. And Rutschman on Sunday night has the Orioles starting catcher at number two batter, one for four with a single and a walk. Adley Rutschman's on base percentage since the O's brought him up to the majors on May 21st is 366. And he very much has emerged as a leading candidate for the American League Rookie of the Year award. You know, Adley Rutschman entered Sunday tied for number four among all position players in the majors in Fangraphs wins above replacement since June 10th. Uh, Anthony Santander, two big games for him in this series against the Red Sox. He on Friday night as the Orioles starting DH and number three batter went three for five with a two-run homer, a two-run double, and a single. And Santander on Sunday night as the Orioles starting DH and number three batter went three for five with a double, an RBI single, and another single. Uh, also, the O's have called up another one of their top prospects. Uh, the O's on Friday afternoon selected the contract of outfielder Kyle Stowers from AAA Norfolk. Uh, the O's took Stowers in the second round of the 2019 MLB draft out of Stanford. Uh, Stowers per MLB pipeline is the Orioles' number nine prospect. He This season for AAA Norfolk, over 407 plate appearances, had an OPS of 884. Uh, he started two of the Orioles' three games over the weekend. Uh, he on Friday night as the Orioles starting right fielder and number five batter went two for five with two singles. He on Sunday night as the Orioles starting left fielder and number five batter went 0 for four uh, with four strikeouts and left three men on base. Uh, this was a very shaky series for Orioles pitching. Uh, the bullpen, which of course has been so good this season, uh, was spotty in this series. Take Sunday night, for example, Dylan Tate in the top of the eighth Gave up a leadoff homer to Franchi Cordero to tie the game at two. Uh, Felix Batista in the top of the ninth gave up a leadoff homer to Xander Bogarts to cut the Orioles' lead to 5-3. The Orioles starting pitching, Jordan Lyles in game one was not good. Uh, Lyles in that 15-10 win on Friday night, four runs in four innings. Now, he did have five strikeouts versus no walks, but he gave up nine hits, three doubles, and six singles. He over his four innings threw 89 pitches, although he did throw a lot of strikes, uh, 60 strikes versus just 29 balls. Uh, Kyle Bradish in game two was just so-so. Bradish in that 4-3 loss on Saturday, three runs in five and two-thirds innings. Uh, like Lyles, Bradish did have a good strikeout-to-walk ratio, six strikeouts versus no walks. But uh, also like Lyles, Bradish gave up a lot of hits, nine hits, in fact. Each guy gave up nine hits. Uh, Bradish on Saturday gave up a homer, a double, and seven singles. Uh, he issued a hit-by-pitch, and he over his time of the game threw a lot of pitches. Five and two-thirds innings, 98 pitches, uh, 60 strikes versus 38 balls. A pitching bright spot for the O's over the weekend was Dean Kramer in game three. Uh, he was good for a third time in four starts. Kramer in the 5-3 win on Sunday night. One run in five and a third innings, four strikeouts, uh, gave up five hits, two doubles, and three singles. Issued two walks, and he did throw a lot of strikes. 80 pitches, 55 strikes versus just 25 balls. Uh, Dean Kramer continues to be a bright spot for the O's this season. It hasn't necessarily been linear. He has had some bad outings, but overall now, Dean Kramer in the 2022 regular season, 14 starts in ERA of 345. He has been so much better this season at the major league level as compared to what he was last season 
at the major league level. Dean Kramer last season was one of the worst pitchers, not just for the O's, but in the majors. Uh, Dean Kramer in the 2021 regular season at the major league level for the O's made 13 starts, totaled 53 and two-thirds innings. He had an ERA of 755. Uh, the O's during that 2021 regular season it twice demoted it. Dean Kramer to Triple A Norfolk. He has taken a big step forward this year. Uh, no game for the O's on Monday. Uh, next up for them is a three-game series against the Chicago White Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game one Tuesday night at 7.05. Austin Voth will be the Orioles starting pitcher. Game two Wednesday night at 7.05. Spencer Watkins will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And game three Thursday night at 7.05. Jordan Lyles will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 383. We'll have a lot more on the commanders, including a special guest, Howard Gutman, uh, the former United States ambassador to Belgium, a 1977 graduate of Columbia University, a 1980 graduate of Harvard Law School. He is a big Commanders fan, and he's going to give us his analysis of two things in particular, uh, the Ryan Vermillion situation, particularly the major legal development with him this past Friday, and Dan Snyder and Congress. What the heck is going on? Uh, it was on July 28th that Dan testified before Congress's House Committee on Oversight and Reform regarding the team's workplace misconduct scandal. The testimony happened virtually. The testimony lasted for nearly 11 hours, but we since then have heard next to nothing about the testimony. Uh, no transcript from Congress, no updates from Congress, nothing. What's going on? Is congressional involvement with the commander's now essentially over? Did Dan, in fact, defeat Congress? Uh, I'm anxious to get Howard's perspective on all of this, and uh, I will talk actual Commander's football on Tuesday's show as well. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Um, Rotunmi Boomi is also a heavy-handed guy who's physical as well. 